Hear the word of the Lord in the letter from Jude. Jude, a servant of Jesus Christ and brother of James, to those who are called, beloved in God the Father, and kept for Jesus Christ, may mercy, peace, and love be multiplied to you. Beloved, although I was very eager to write to you about our common salvation, I found it necessary to write appealing to you to contend for the faith that was once for all delivered to the saints. For certain people have crept in unnoticed, who long ago were designated for this condemnation, ungodly people who pervert the grace of our God into sensuality and deny our only Master and Lord, Jesus Christ. Now, I want to remind you, although you once fully knew it, that Jesus, who saved a people out of the land of Egypt, afterward destroyed those who did not believe. And the angels who did not stay within their own position of authority, but left their proper dwelling, he has kept in eternal chains under gloomy darkness until the judgment of the great day. Just as Sodom and Gomorrah and the surrounding cities, which likewise indulged in sexual immorality and pursued unnatural desire, serve as an example by undergoing a punishment of eternal fire. Yet, in like manner, these people also, relishing on their dreams, defile the flesh, reject authority, and blaspheme the glorious ones. But when the archangel Michael, contending with the devil, was disputing about the body of Moses, he did not presume to pronounce a blasphemous judgment, but said, The Lord rebuke you. But these people blaspheme all that they do not understand, and they are destroyed by all that they, like unreasoning animals, understand instinctively. Woe to them, for they walked in the way of Cain and abandoned themselves for the sake of gain to Balaam's error and perished in Coram's rebellion. These are hidden reefs at your love feasts, as they feast with you without fear, shepherds feeding themselves, waterless clouds swept along by winds, fruitless trees in late autumn, twice dead, uprooted, wild waves of the sea, casting up the foam of their own shame, wandering stars for whom the gloom of utter darkness has been reserved forever. It was also about these that Enoch, the seventh from Adam, prophesied, saying, Behold, the Lord comes with ten thousands of his holy ones to execute judgment on all and to convict all the ungodly of their deeds of ungodliness that they have committed in such an ungodly way and of all the harsh things that ungodly sinners have spoken against him. These are grumblers, malcontents, following their own sinful desires. They are loud-mouthed boasters showing favoritism to gain advantage. But you must remember, beloved, the predictions of the apostles of our Lord Jesus Christ. They said to you, In the last time there will be scoffers following their own ungodly passions. It is these who cause divisions, worldly people devoid of the Spirit. But you, beloved, building yourselves up in your most holy faith and praying in the Holy Spirit, keep yourselves in the love of God, waiting for the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ that leads to eternal life, and have mercy on those who doubt. Save others by snatching them out of the fire. To others show mercy with fear, hating even the garments stained by the flesh. Now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to present you blameless before the presence of his glory with great joy, to the only God our Savior, through Jesus Christ our Lord, be glory, majesty, dominion, and authority before all time and now and forever. Amen. Let's pray. And now may the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts be acceptable in your sight, O God, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. When I became a Christian, 
at the very end of the 70s, I was in a situation in the church, and this was pretty characteristic of the evangelical church in the United States in those days, in which there was a great urgency to get the gospel out to people. And there was a a time of great growth in the church in those days. It was a very exciting time to become a Christian and to be a Christian. However, once someone became a Christian, as I did, there was also a sense that the most important thing was discipline. So we were given the gospel if we were non-Christians, and then once we became Christians, we were given disciplines of the spiritual life. We were told to, to attend church, preferably morning and evening on the Lord's Day, and then some other time during the week. And we were told that we should read our Bibles every day, and that we should pray that we should share the gospel with others, that we should give generously out of our possessions. And I have to say that I am very, very grateful for the disciplines that I was taught as a brand new Christian. And I didn't know any better. And so I just did what they told me to do. I started reading my Bible every day and praying every day and trying to share the gospel with others and going to church. And and giving of my possessions. I didn't know any better. And I thank God that the church taught me those disciplines. At the same time, there was something of a sense of a a bifurcation, a a division between what non-Christians needed and what Christians needed. What non-Christians needed was God's grace, God's free favor. They needed forgiveness. And Christians needed to get with the program. Now, nobody came out and said that, but that's sometimes how it felt. That grace was for non-Christians, God free favor for non-Christians, and an effort was for Christians. Now, um, that's not wrong, but it's incomplete. And over the decades, these past decades, the 80s, the 90s, there has been a rediscovering of grace, not just for non-Christians, but for Christians as well. That God's free favor is for Christians as well, that we don't stand before God on the basis of how well we have performed in our Christian disciplines. We stand before God forgiven and right in His sight because Christ died and rose again for sinners. And that emphasis has has exploded over the 80s and the 90s. But then some people have gone too far with that. And what they have decided is that these disciplines are against grace. That there is grace over here, and any talk of obedience, any talk of discipline, any talk of effort, that's legalism. That's performing. And there have, in the past few decades in the United States, been proponents of what is sometimes called Hyper-grace. Hyper-grace. Now, I will challenge that description because a more accurate description of this would be libertinism. That is to say, treating the gospel as a liberty to do whatever you want. Or, there's another, here's another word, big word for you, antinomianism. Anti-against, nomos, law, against the law. And any time in the presence of these kind of teachers you mention the importance of God's law or obedience or any such thing, they say, ah, you're a legalist. And so they say that they are promoting God's grace when in fact, as we will see, they are 
denying the power thereof. And this is not a new thing. It looks like a new thing in our experience, but it's not a new thing. In fact, it's almost as old as the gospel itself. And how do we know that? Because we find in the New Testament examples of these libertines, examples of these antinomians. Now, with these three letters that we've looked at, we see the four main ways that pastors, preachers, leaders go astray and lead their churches astray. In 2 John, we saw that there was false teaching. In 3 John, we saw that there was overbearing dominance of the flock. And now here, we round it out in Jude with teachers who are greedy and who are sexually immoral. But their greed and their sexual immorality, they're able to cover up with their false teaching. Now... Let's get into the letter. That's the introduction here to what we're going to look at today. Um, Here we're going to meet some of these early libertines. And this says in verse 1, Jude, a servant of Jesus Christ and brother of James. Now, who in the early church was able to present himself with just his first name and then uh, the first name of his brother? There's really only one candidate for which Jude this is. It's the same name as Judas, but traditionally translated Jude, perhaps to distinguish him from Judas Iscariot. There's only one who is this prominent in the church, able to present himself as Jude, the brother of James, both of whom were the brothers, or we should say technically, half-brothers of Jesus, the brothers of the Lord. They were brothers of Mary and Joseph after Jesus' birth. And we meet them in the Gospels. For example, you can go to Mark chapter 5, verse 3, And then you can also read in John that they were not believers at the beginning. They were his brothers, but they were not believers. But they became believers, and we know that because they too became ministers in the church of God. James became the leader in the church in Jerusalem, and the other brothers of the Lord became traveling missionaries and evangelists. We know that from 1 Corinthians 9.5, where Paul refers to the apostles and to the brothers of the Lord who were ministers of the gospel. Now, Jude applied to his Christian readers here words that are described, used to describe the servant of the Lord in the servant songs in Isaiah chapter 40 and following. It says, Jude, a servant of Jesus Christ and brother of James, to those who are called, beloved in God the Father, and kept for Jesus Christ. These three descriptions describe the servant of the Lord in Isaiah 40 and following. The the servant of the Lord is beloved of God, he is called by God, and he is kept for God. And now these, these descriptions are being applied to the Christian church, those who believe in the servant of the Lord, in the Lord Jesus Christ. And for Christians, he desires mercy, peace, and love. Now the first two of these are typical Hebrew or Jewish greeting or blessing. Mercy, you may have heard the Old Testament word chesed. It's translated a number of different ways in the Old Testament as loving kindness or faithfulness or love. Uh, That also translated mercy. So may chesed, may mercy be yours and peace. And that's the typical Jewish blessing to this day. What do Jews use to bless each other? They wish each other what? Shalom, peace. But then he adds the typical Christian blessing to that as well, agape, or love. So we have mercy, peace, and love. Chesed, shalom, and agape. Now, um, Jude got sidetracked from what he really wanted to do. 
He tells us the letter that he wanted to write, that he didn't write, and then he tells us about the letter that he did write. The letter he wanted to write was a positive letter, talking about the common salvation we have. Look at verse 3. Beloved, although I was very eager to write to you about our common salvation, I found it necessary to write appealing to you to contend for the faith that was once delivered to the saints. So there was an emergency situation. So he says, I wanted to write to you a positive treatise on on our salvation and, and rejoice together in that, but an emergency situation arose, and so I have to write to you to appeal to you to contend for the faith. This faith was delivered once for all, and we find out in verse 18 that it was delivered to these readers by the apostles themselves, and that, that faith is, is, a, is a body of truth that is inalterable. It cannot be changed. So this, this body of truth, this, these doctrines of the gospel were given to the church once and for all, never to be changed, never to be altered, to be received and to be believed. But there was an emergency situation in which some were calling these into question and challenging these by their teaching. Look at verse 4. For certain people have crept in unnoticed who long ago were designated for this condemnation. And now his, fa- his favorite, I don't know if you noticed how many times he used this adjective, ungodly people. That's, that's his characterization of these, these folks, these teachers. Ungodly people, and this is their error, who pervert the grace of our God into sensuality. Pervert the grace of our God into sensuality. And that's what I was describing at the beginning. Here's their libertinism. They're saying the grace of God means we can do whatever we want. Because after all, Jesus died for our sins, we're forgiven, so it doesn't matter how we live. That's what they were teaching. And that was a convenient teaching for them so that they could go on and do whatever they wanted. But they thought in their own mind, that they were, they were emphasizing God's grace. God's grace is so great and so powerful that He can forgive you even if you ignore Him and even if you go and do your own thing. They thought they were magnifying God's grace. But look at how Jude describes them. He says that they perverted the grace of our God into sensuality and denied our only Master and Lord, Jesus Christ. They thought they were affirming Jesus. They thought they were exalting Him. They thought they were lifting up His grace. And Jude says, on the contrary, they are denying. And here he uses a unique description of Jesus. He calls Him the Master and Lord. Now, how are they denying? Usually, Master is applied to God the Father, but here it's applied to Jesus, the Master and Lord, Jesus Christ. How are they denying Him? Well, let me ask you something. What is a Master? A master is someone to be obeyed. And since they refused to obey Jesus, they were denying Him. What is, what is a Lord, after all? A Lord is one to be served. And by refusing to serve Him, by their actions and by their teaching, they were denying the Lord and Master. Now, um, Jude, he, he went on to do something here that is very very unusual for us. And, and it's really hard for us to read this little book. It was, it was a hard little book to study, and it's probably a hard book for us to hear. Why? Because 
we are not steeped in the pop culture of uh, first century Judaism. Because here, what Jude does is he uses examples from the Old Testament, and we recognize those, but he also rec- he, he, he uses examples from popular writings that were, that were circulating in his day among Jews. And we hear some stories and we, we think, wait a minute, I've read the Old Testament and I don't remember hearing that in the Old Testament. That's because these are not in the Old Testament. He referred to, to a couple different popular writings of the day. He didn't call them Scripture. He didn't treat them as Scripture, but they were well known and he appealed to them. Uh, one was called First Enoch and the other was called the Testament of Moses. That were embellishments on some things that happened in the Old Testament. Now, we can get bogged down pretty easily in verses 5 to 19. And here, you can hear Jude. I mean, this sounds like a rip-roaring, uh, pulling out all the stops, all, the, all the, the things that he can think of to condemn these teachers. And so what he does, basically, is he appeals to the Old Testament examples. He appeals to these popular Jewish uh, ideas about things that happened. And he also appeals to a couple of prophecies. One of them is from First Enoch, and the other is from the Apostles. And so what he does is he alternates. He refers to the examples, and then he applies them to these these. So look for this word, these. And you might hear something of a little bit of a sneer when he says, these people. And he keeps referring to these. So he gives an example and he says, these people are just like that. These people are facing the same condemnation. Then some more examples. Then these people. And then a prophecy, these people. And then another prophecy, these people. And at the end he says, but you. And there's the contrast. In verse 20, he says, but you, beloved, in contrast to these. So we won't get into all the details here. This would take a number of weeks to do that. Um, He piles these up and to trace them all down and to, to explain them all would take a great deal of time. But I don't even think he really wants us to do that because he's piling them up so fast here that he wants us to feel the cumulative effect of all these examples and denunciations of these libertine teachers. Now, the first three examples were the unbelieving generation that came out of Egypt. That's in verse 5. And you find that in Numbers chapter 14. These were the ones who came out of Egypt, but they fell in the desert because they did not believe. The second example is an unusual story from Genesis chapter 6 about the sons of God going after the daughters of men. And it looks like angels uh, mating with women. And it's a very unusual story. Uh, but that's, that's one interpretation. And that's the interpretation that was current in the day. It's embellished in the, the book of First Enoch, which is not in the Bible. And then there's the example of Sodom and Gomorrah, which is in the Bible, where the men uh, wanted to rape the visiting angels, not knowing that they were angels. So in one story, it's angels going after humans. In the other story, it's humans going after angels. And it's, it's a, it looks like what he's saying here is this is such an unnatural, bizarre sort of circumstance, and that's how these teachers are. And he says, all of these faced judgment or experienced judgment. And he says, these teachers, these teachers today, they are the same. They are following their dreams. So look at verse 8. Yet in like manner, these people, 
also relying on their dreams. Now, what was once for all given to the saints? Individual dreams? No. The truth, the faith, the gospel. But that's not what they were relying on. They were relying on their dreams. It says, relying on their dreams, they defile the flesh, reject authority, and blaspheme the glorious ones. Then he gives another example. And this example is not in the Bible. It's uh, it's popular Jewish idea that Michael and the devil disputed over the body of Moses. And um, that the, the, the devil was was condemning Moses and uh, that Michael didn't, didn't, didn't take it upon himself to pronounce a judgment, but he says, the Lord rebuke you. And that's how the story goes. And he, he contrasts that with these people who had set themselves up as their own law. And he says, if Michael the archangel didn't set himself up as the own, their own, his own arbiter of truth and law, how much less should these people do that? And then there are three other examples and these we recognize uh, from, from the Bible. There's Cain. This is in, um, this is, let me see, in verse 11. Uh, he mentions Cain, who, who killed his brother Abel. And that's back in Genesis 4. There's Balaam, who was a prophet, who sold out his prophesying to the highest bidder. And so he was prophesying for the sake of gain. And that was in Numbers chapters 22 to 24. And then there's Korah, who rose up in rebellion against Moses. That's Numbers chapter 16. And he mentions those. And then he says, these are just like that. Look at, look at verse 12. Once again, these, and here he piles up a bunch of descriptions. Hidden reefs at your love feast, your communion. They feast with you without fear, shepherds feeding themselves, waterless clouds swept along by winds, fruitless trees inlaid on them, twice dead, uprooted, wild waves of the sea, casting up the foam of their own shame, wandering stars for whom the gloom of utter darkness has been reserved forever. He is not holding back here at all on these false teachers. And then, after that, so we have three examples, then another three examples, then we have two prophecies. Verse 14, it was also about these that Enoch, the seventh from Adam, prophesied, saying, Behold, the Lord comes with ten thousands of holy ones to execute judgment on all and to convict all the ungodly of all their deeds of ungodliness that they have committed in such an ungodly way and of all the harsh things that ungodly sinners have spoken against him. What were these people like? They were ungodly, right. And then he says, these, verse 16, these are just like that. These are grumblers, malcontents, following their own sinful desires, loud mouth boasters, showing favoritism to gain advantage. And then, okay, are you getting weary? One more, one more, and then we'll, then we'll get back to us. Because it's all about these right now. So verse 17, you must remember, beloved, the predictions of the apostles of our Lord Jesus Christ. They said to you, here's the prophecy of the, the, the apostles, in the last days there will be scoffers following their own ungodly passions. Then he says, it is these, these false teachers, these who cause divisions, worldly people, devoid of the Spirit. Now that's, 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 a, that's the, 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 the last description of them, devoid of the Spirit. And that's exactly the opposite of what they thought they were. You see, they were saying, oh, we are full of the Spirit. And we have dreams that come from God. 
And these dreams tell us we can do whatever we want. We are more full of the Spirit than you are. You're stuck with the letter. We're people of the Spirit. We're the ones who have dreams. And he says, Jude says, they are devoid of the Spirit. And you can tell they're devoid of the Spirit because they are ungodly. They are without God in the way they live their lives. Okay, now. Then in verse 20, he says, but you, but you, beloved, in light of all this, this phenomenon that happened in those days, this phenomenon that if you read church history has happened repeatedly over church history, this phenomenon that has happened in my own lifetime and in the Christian church in the United States with with terrible consequences, what do we do? What do we do in light of this? In light of the pull, and there is a pull, isn't there? There's an attractiveness to this teaching, isn't there? What's the attractiveness? You, you, get, you get eternal life, you get forgiveness, and you get to do whatever you want. And there is something that appeals to our flesh in that. And so, so he says, be careful, you, beloved. You be careful not to be, not to be drawn away by this sort of teaching, because there is an attractiveness to this teaching. And he says, you, beloved, how are you going to avoid being being sucked in by this? Verse 21, keep yourselves in the love of God. Keep yourselves in the love of God. That's it. That's how you're going to avoid being sucked in and drawn astray. Keep yourselves in the love of God. But you might think, that sounds kind of unusual. How do we keep ourselves in the love of God. Isn't, isn't, isn't God the one who takes the initiative here? Yes, He is. Isn't He the one who loved the world so much that He sent His only Son to give Himself for us? Don't we love because He first loved us? Absolutely. But, but we do love because He first loved us. And He says, keep yourself, if you're in the love of God by faith in Christ, then don't move from there, folks. Stay right there. Keep yourselves there. And he gives us three ways to do that. Notice that the command is in verse 21. And then there are three participles ending in ing. Verse 20. Building. Verse 20. Praying. Verse 21. Waiting. So the command is keep yourselves. And then these three participles, these ing words, explain how we keep ourselves in the love of God. The first one is, beloved, building yourselves up in your most holy faith. And the second one is, and praying in the Holy Spirit. Do you remember two of the disciplines, two of the the primary disciplines that I was taught at the very beginning? Read the Bible and pray. Guess what, folks? That's what he says here. He says, build yourselves up in the most holy faith. What is that most holy faith? It's the Word of God. It's the doctrine of Scripture. It is the Gospel that has been given to us. So, So build yourselves upon that foundation and continually build yourselves up in the Word. And, in addition to that, Praying in the Holy Spirit. You see, this is the contrast, right? These teachers were devoid of the Spirit, but he says, but you, brothers, 
You sisters, you pray in the Holy Spirit. How are you going to keep yourselves in the love of God? By keeping yourselves being built up on the Word of God and keeping yourselves in fellowship with God by praying in the Holy Spirit. And the third one is this, waiting for the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ that leads to eternal life. Waiting, expecting, looking for the return of Christ, living your life in light of the fact that Christ is going to come back and He is going to confirm eternal life in His mercy to all who are waiting for Him. Keep yourselves in the love of God. How? Building yourselves up in the Word, praying in the Holy Spirit, and living expecting, expectantly the return of our Lord and the mercy that will be given in that day. And then he says, also, if you are looking for mercy, you should also practice mercy. And here the rubber meets the road, right? How are we going to treat each other? So we're building ourselves up, we're praying, we are, we are looking forward to the mercy that we will receive. But he says, also extend that mercy to others, even to those who are in error, even to those who are in sin, and have mercy on those who doubt or dispute. Save others by snatching them out of the fire. To others, show mercy, hating even the garment stained by the flesh. So, um, building, praying, waiting, and showing mercy. That's how we're going to keep ourselves in the love of God. But I want you to see something as Jude comes to the end here, how he comes full circle here. Look at verse 1. Verse 1 says, Jude, a servant of Jesus Christ and brother of James, to those who are called, beloved in God the Father, and what? Kept for Jesus Christ. And then we get to verse 21. But you, beloved, keep yourselves in the love of God. And then verse 24, now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to present you blameless before the presence of his glory with great joy. You see what he says? You are kept and you are beloved. Therefore, keep yourselves in the love of God. And now unto him who is able to do what? To keep you and to cause you to stand before Him blameless and faultless. And you see, these are the two things we need to keep together. We are able to keep ourselves in the love of God because He is able to keep us in His love. So no, this isn't just a question of human effort. This isn't just a question of trying hard. This is keeping ourselves in His love because He is pledged to keep us until the end. And how is He able to do that? Well, He goes on and says He's the only God. He's our Savior through Jesus Christ, our Lord. And this word, be glory, probably should be, there's no verb here actually in the original, but it probably is belong. Uh, to, to our only God, our Savior, Jesus Christ our Lord, belong glory, majesty, dominion, and authority. That's why He's able to keep you until the end and present you faultless before Him. Because He has the authority, He has the dominion, He has the glory, He has the majesty, and He can do it, and He will do it. This is how He was, this is how He is, this is how He always will be. Now, 
Let's get back to these teachers and what they missed. You see, what these teachers and every libertine or antinomian since then has missed is this. That grace is even better than they try to present it. And that's why I dispute this idea of these being hyper-grace teachers. I would say rather that they are hypo-grace teachers. They are not exalting the grace of God. They are diminishing the grace of God. Let me ask you something. Which is a greater grace? Which is a greater grace? A grace that comes to you in your sin and says, you can be forgiven for, for all of your sins. But I am going to leave you in the muck and in the mire and in the devastation and in the enslavement of your sins. Or a grace that comes to you and says, out of free favor, out of, out of God's free love, you can be forgiven for all of your sins. And not only that, You can be rescued out of your sins. You can be transformed. You can be changed. You can be made into a different person. Let me ask you, which of those, which of those is a greater grace? Which is the hyper grace? It's the grace that not only forgives, but transforms. It's the grace that not only saves us from the guilt of our sin, but from the power of sin in our lives. It's the grace that gives us a foretaste of that blamelessness that we'll have on the day that He returns and makes us more and more like Jesus as we walk through this life. So... My beloved friends, Jude says to us, keep yourselves, keep yourselves in this love. Keep yourselves in this grace, this grace that's able to forgive you and not only forgive you, but to transform you as well. And don't let anybody, don't let anybody diminish that grace, the power of that grace that works not only to forgive you, but to make you into the image of Jesus in preparation for that great day. Let's pray. Our God, we thank You that Your grace is not less than we thought, but more than we thought. And Lord, we pray that we would never diminish Your grace and deny the Master and Lord who bought us by suggesting that that He came simply to forgive us and not to change us. Lord, we need both. We need both in this, this year. We need both every minute of our lives. We need both in anticipation of that great day. We need daily to be forgiven, O oh God. Forgive us again for our sins of thought and word and deed. And change us, O oh God. Change us. And make us more like Christ. Make us trophies of Your grace in the fact that we've been forgiven for all of the things that we've thought, said, and done against You. And make us trophies of Your grace visibly as we walk through this world. And as people can see in us the power of Your grace to liberate sinners like us from the clutches of our sin. Because to You belong all the the power and majesty dominion and authority 
now and forevermore. Amen.